Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 55. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that you would use it and apply it. You promise that you'll do that. You promise that your word does not go forth in vain. And so all all we ask is that you would remember your promises. And once again this week, use this sermon for our good, but most of all, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, I want to return to another resurrection account that I believe uniquely speaks to where we all find ourselves. And where we find ourselves is at the end of ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'm officially tired of all of this. 
Now, some of you were tired of it immediately. Immediately, you felt uh, the financial impact. Some of you immediately uh, felt the fear um, of catching this virus because you fit into um, that more vulnerable demographic. Immediately, some of you had more work to do, not less work. Some of you immediately, um, knowing that you live alone, felt the burden of loneliness and isolation. So some, many, have been tired of this for a long time. But then there is this other demographic, the healthy demographic, um, with a steady income, uh, perhaps a lessened workload, slow down pace of life, everyone together in your own home as a family or um, as roommates. And if, uh, if you're being honest with yourself, this whole thing was kind of fun at first. But the point I'm making is that even that demographic, even for them, and I would put myself in that demographic, this has gotten old. The restlessness, the impatience, the isolation, it's taking a toll on all of us. And I think it's, it's safe to say we're starting to get fed up with this thing. Even this is getting old. Some of you told me, and you always, you always uh, offered this with an apology as if it would hurt my feelings. It did not hurt my feelings, but some of you told me that, um, that the online worship experience you actually were really enjoying at first. Um, but some of those same people have come back and said, you know, this is getting old. I'm ready to be back together in church. I guess what I'm saying is that I just think that we are now all officially in agreement that it's time to wrap this whole pandemic thing up. And yet, there remains no end in sight. At least at that end is a sense of normalcy. And emerging from that frustrated uncertainty are those questions that the suffering tend to ask. Where is God? Why is God not answering our prayers? How many times do we have to pray that this virus would end before He acts? What is He doing in all this? Why is He allowing this? All of us are praying the prayers of the psalm, How long, O Lord? Well, I thought of this passage for that very reason. It's another resurrection passage, but this one is so applicable to our situation right now. It is truly a fascinating story. So let me set the scene just by uh, quickly reviewing it. Jairus' only child is deathly ill. He comes to Jesus. He begs for Jesus to heal him, to heal her, and Jesus agrees to do that. Um, but there is a sense of urgency to it because she's on her deathbed. So every, every moment could be her last moment. Every breath could be her last breath. So there's an urgency to the passage. But it seems when you look at the passage that Jesus doesn't understand the urgency. He is making his way to their house to heal the girl. And then he stops. And he has this moment where he gets totally distracted by another issue, or so it seems he gets distracted. He stops to be with another suffering person, this woman who has had this ailment for so long, and he heals her. And then someone comes to Jairus and says, you know what, it's too late. She's dead. Leave Jesus alone. Now think about the implications of that story, okay? A little girl who is moments away from death. A father 
begging Jesus to heal his daughter. And Jesus agrees to do so. And then he literally gets distracted by a woman who no doubt has a problem. It's a problem, but it's not a life-threatening problem. She's had it for 12 years. Surely this could, surely this could wait one hour while he goes to heal this little girl. But Jesus stops to engage with this woman, to heal this woman, and because of that, the little girl dies. I love that this story is in our Bibles. Because this is the Jesus. The Jesus in this story is the Jesus that we wrestle with in our frustrations, in our suffering, in our confusion, in our unanswered prayers. This is an unanswered prayer. Now that I say that, Jairus says, Jesus, will you heal? Jesus answers, yes, I'll heal. And this is one of those times where it seems like his prayer that he thought God promised to answer goes unanswered. This story, what I'm trying to say, is that this story gives expression to what so many of us experience and to what many of us, perhaps all of us, are, are acutely experiencing right now. Here's the reality. We heard it read in our Old Testament reading. God's ways are not our ways. This is true. God's ways are not our ways. And we are feeling it now more than ever because I think a few months ago we never would have expected this. We never would have planned it. We never would have wanted it. And we want it gone. But God's ways are not our ways. But what I think we need to know and what I want to do today is not just that God's ways are not our ways, but how are God's ways not our ways? That's what I think we need to know today. And we're going to learn four key differences from the passage. Four differences between the way we think and act and the way God thinks and acts. And conveniently, they all start with a P. God has a different perspective. God has a different priority, God has a different purpose, and God has a different power. Let's look at each of those together. First, God's got a different perspective than ours. There is a stark contrast between Jesus and everyone else in the story, and intentionally so. He's making a point. When you read it, as I said, there is a desperation to the words and actions of everyone, but a calmness in the words and actions of Jesus. This is most striking in verse 52, where it says, All were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. Do not weep. She's sleeping. You call this sleep? He almost comes ac across as, as callously indifferent to the tragedy of this moment. Or... Could it be that he has a perspective of this moment that nobody else in the story shares? Could it be that he is privy to knowledge that nobody else has? You know, one of the taken-for-granted um, aspects of Scripture and beauty of Scripture is that we are let in on the omniscient perspective. We get the whole story in reading the Bible and the accounts within, meaning we are watching these narratives unfold from the perspective of heaven. 
But let us not forget that this is a real event involving real people. This, this is a 12-year-old little girl who has died. These are parents who have lost their only child. I mean, this is tragic stuff, as tragic as it can get. But we aren't experiencing the story like that, are we? We are experiencing the story from above. We don't see the part. We see the whole. Jairus doesn't know everything is going to be okay, but we do. So my question is, if you could step into the story when Jairus hears that his daughter has died and his world literally collapses, what would you say to him? You would say, I know you're experiencing unimaginable pain and grief, perhaps pain and grief that you didn't even think was possible. I know you think this is the darkest hour and you can't perhaps even imagine recovering from this, but you don't know the whole story. You would say, I know it sounds ridiculous, perhaps even insensitive for me to say this, but everything is going to be fine. But of course, we are not privy to that perspective when it comes to our own personal stories, our own life. All we know is the moment by moment, bound by space and time of what is before us, limited, finite experiences and knowledge. But what you need to know is that God, God looks down upon our story the same way we look down upon the story of Jairus. God does not freak out over current events because He knows all events. Yes, He has written this chapter, but it's only a chapter of the entire story that He has written, a story that He is very comfortable with and even excited about. And you would too if you knew what He knows. If you could see your story from His perspective, you would tell yourself exactly what you would tell Jairus. It's okay. I know it doesn't feel okay, but it's going to be okay. Jesus can fix this. Here's the point. There is a hidden understanding discovered in admitting ignorance. In admitting that God is infinite and we are finite, that God is omniscient, but we are limited, that, that God sees the whole story and we only see the part. That confession of ignorance actually yields a profound form of understanding, an understanding described as we walk by faith, not by sight. Understanding that goes beyond these present circumstances and yields to eternal promises. If you could see your story from above, then the pain down below would lose most of its sting. God has a different perspective. Next, let's look at a difference in priority. Look at verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. 
Now a detail there that is easy to miss but very important to the meaning of the passage is that Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. Now we don't know what that means but everybody in that context would know exactly what that meant. Uh, Jairus embodies successful, uh, popular, powerful um, elite of society, um, the highest form of dignity and class and respect and reverence in their day. And if he is anything like the other rulers of the synagogue, and chances are he is, then he's not a big fan of Jesus. In fact, he probably hated Jesus. Now, what could take a proud, powerful man to forsake all dignity and bow at the feet of the very person he despises? A dying child. That will do it. This is about the only thing that could get Jairus at the feet of Jesus. And this is the uniqueness that tragedy affords us. Tragedy, much more so than prosperity, has a way of breaking down all strength, all pride, all dignity, all success. And tragedy, only tragedy, can shatter all of that and take us to the end of ourselves where all we have left to do is plead to Jesus. That is to say, tragedy has a unique ability to bring people to the feet of the Savior. Now here's the question, if you're courageous enough to answer it. What if that posture is God's highest priority for your life? Perhaps that's not our priority for our lives. Our priority is comfort. But what if God, above all else, values, prioritizes humble dependence at the feet of Jesus? And so great is this priority that He is a willing to allow anything, even our worst nightmare like we see in our passage, to get us into that posture. I think I am well within scriptural bounds to tell you that this is, in fact, the case. Our humility is His priority. He wants to dismantle our self-reliance and resurrect a Jesus-reliance. He wants to crucify the old Robert Cunningham and build up in its place a new Robert Cunningham, wholly submitted and devoted and dependent upon Jesus. That's his priority, infinitely more valuable than my comfort. And he is unrelenting in that priority. I say that having felt it this very day, meaning literally today, just a couple hours ago, I was in tears over something God is showing me about myself so much so that Mark said, hey, you sure you want to record your sermon today? And my response is that this is when I should be preaching more than ever. I'm living God's humbling. And I bet because of this unique circumstance, all of us are in some degree or fashion. Now, thankfully, he is often very gentle in his humbling process. But occasionally, like a pandemic, he gets violent. But so be it. 
He loves us too much to give us what we prioritize, and instead He will give us what He prioritizes. And what He prioritizes is where Jairus finds himself in this passage, at the feet of Jesus. Okay, so we've seen differences in perspective, differences in priorities. Now let's see difference in purpose. I want us to consider that we exist for the glory of God. I know, I know, we say it all the time. But I actually want us to consider that it's true. I want us to consider that God's chief concern is His own glory and that He is using all things, including your life and your story, toward the end of His glory. Are you okay with a Jesus who lets a 12-year-old girl die only to display His glory in raising her from the dead? We talked about this last week with Lazarus where he explicitly says, that's what I'm doing. I'm glad I wasn't there. Lazarus has died. I'm glad so that now you may believe. You may believe in my power. You may believe in my glory. But a child? We okay with the death of a child becoming a means to make Jesus famous? There's a peculiar comment here in verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. Now, it makes sense that he would say nobody is allowed to come in except the parents. But he also wanted Peter, James, and John there. That's his inner circle. These are the future uh, leaders of the church, the lead apostles of the early church. And he wants them there to witness what he's about to do. You know what that's saying to us? Jesus views this as a discipleship moment. He let a girl die so that he could teach a lesson to his disciples. He's preparing them. He's training them. And this girl's death has turned into a test case of sorts. And the test case is his glory. And it worked. The story was remembered, recounted, and recorded in Scripture. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, still learning from this story. Here we are learning to trust in Jesus in the middle of a pandemic because of what happened that day. And for centuries, this story has been used in countless ways to glorify Jesus and accomplish the purposes of Jesus. Now, here's the question. Was it worth it? Was this tragedy, as horrific and painful as it may be, worth all the glory, all the fame, all the worship that Jesus has received because of it? The answer is a resounding yes. Jairus, those weeping and wailing, and certainly the dying girl, could never imagine how much this story would be used, how much glory Jesus would receive from this tragedy. Now make the connection. What if God is doing the same in your life and mine? What if His purpose for you is to make much of Himself? What if your suffering is being used to display His rescue? What if your pain is used to to display His power? What if your ruin is used to display His redemption? What if your life, your story, is one of innumerable stories all used to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ? I'm sorry, but everything you want in life is secondary to that. 
That might come across as callous, and I'm sorry if it does, but may I suggest that the moment you realize that truth is the moment your suffering ceases to be meaningless. God glorified in our suffering infuses our suffering, not just with much needed meaning, but dare I say, nobility. Okay, we've seen the difference in perspective, priorities, purpose. Now, let's close with the difference of power. Mankind is a powerful creature, and we are getting exponentially more powerful by the day. The advancements, the abilities, they are staggering. And who knows, perhaps there will never be a problem that these image bearers of God are not able to solve, save one, death. From dust you were made, and to dust you shall return. No matter how powerful we become, we will never escape that verdict. And our entire world is keenly aware of this right now. In all the social distancing and all of the uh, rapidly advancing treatment options and, and the, in, in the frantic search for, for vaccine, none of that is being done to, to stop death. All of it is just an attempt to mitigate death. Because we all know one thing is true. We cannot stop death. And we see that in our text. Look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And that seems logical. Perhaps he could have healed her, but don't trouble him anymore because she's dead. There's nothing left to be done. And they're right from our perspective. We put our dead in graves for a reason because there's nothing left we can do for them. Ah, but there is one last difference between us and Jesus. Verse 50, but Jesus. I, I love the but Jesuses of Scripture. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Believe? Believe what? Are you trying to tell us that you can do something about this situation? Verse 52, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Of course they laughed at him. What are you talking about, Jesus? She's dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. A phrase is a difficult word to translate, but it has the feel of what you would say to your child when waking them up in the morning. That soft, gentle child it's time to wake up. And without breaking a sweat, the Lord pulls her out of the clutches of man's most powerful enemy. Verse 55, And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. I love that detail. Jesus treats her like she just woke up from a nap. Can someone get the girl some food? She's probably hungry. Please listen to me. The only things that we fear are those things which are more powerful than us, those things which we cannot control, which is why all of us are fearful of this thing called death. It's the one thing more powerful than everything, the one thing that none of us can control. But Jesus is stronger than death, and so Jesus does not fear it like we fear it. 
I'm back to where I left us off with Lazarus last week, aren't I? And, and the week before at Easter. But you need to hear it again. In the middle of so much fear of death, the thing that has our entire planet in a panic, Jesus views as threatening as a nap. But adding on to this week is this question, this application I have for you. If Jesus is more powerful than death, then what is he not more powerful than? If Jesus can undo this, then what can he not undo? The answer is nothing. If Jesus can undo your death, he can undo your abuse. If Jesus can undo your death, he can undo your regrets. If Jesus can undo death, he can undo your broken heart. If Jesus can undo death, you name your trauma. You name your hardship. You name your frustration. You name your loss. And yes, you name your sin and ask yourself, if he can undo death, can he undo this? And the answer is, of course. I know it's powerful. I know it hurts. And you may bear it the rest of your life to some degree. But is it more powerful than death? If Jesus can make death come untrue, then yes, he can and will make that come untrue. Friends, God's not like us. And thank God that this is so. His ways are not our ways. His perspective is not like ours. His priorities are not like ours. His purpose is not like ours. And beloved, His power is not like ours. Let's pray. Give us your perspective. Give us your priorities. Give us your purpose. And give us your power. This is what we need in this hour. May our trust be in Jesus and Jesus alone. You are our answer to everything right now. So Spirit, give us Jesus like never before. In His name we pray. Amen.